It's hard to believe I've been in the spoiler room for three years, yet here we are. As I look at my crew, I begin to think about what to do for our third special series of episodes. Then I look at the calendar and realize it's the third week of the month. And I look down at my drink and realize it's the third drink I've had today. After a moment, it hits me like a fist of John Wick. Everyone talks about the first film, but what about the third film in a franchise? So, pull up a chair, grab your favorite drink, and listen in to our third special series of episodes I like to call Third Time's a Charm. And welcome to the Spoiler Rooms, my friends. Yes, it is Westerns Month, and since this is the third week of the month, we are doing our third Times a Charm special, and I figured what better way to do a third Times a Charm special in Western Month than a movie involving threes, and that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And speaking of threes, I have three fellow crew members in the room tonight to help talk about this classic Clint Eastwood Western, which is the third in the Man With No Name franchise, at least according to everything I've looked up. So tonight we have in the room with us, first off, the BFD himself, Mr. Glenn Bittner. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Mark. Glad you could be here to talk about Sergio Leone's uh, classic epic. And next to him, the boy time man himself, he's back once again. It is Mr. Paul Salzer. Hello, Paul. Hello, guys. How are you guys? Doing Good. well, doing well. Glad you could be here tonight. And next to Paul, yes, you heard his sweet pipes. It is Scotty D in the his house. Hello, Scotty D. And yes, if you don't know the film, you may at least know the theme, but we are tonight talking about 1966's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Questions. 
the answers. The showdown. If you're not familiar with this story for this film, shame on you. Okay. <laughs> According to item Debum, we're going to give you the short version here. Uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, there now officially has to have be a, a hip hop artist, and I'm and I'm and I'm drafting Mark <laughs> that calls himself Ivum Debum. <laughs> And spells it like IMDb. <laughs> IMDb. There we go. And my new rap name. Sure, we'll we'll go with that. <laughs> in the story, in the good, the bad, and the ugly, is a bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against the third in a race to find a fortune in gold buried in a remote cemetery. Uh, that really down at its core is the, the film. Mr. Eastwood stars in this as long as along with Lee Van Cleef and uh, Eli uh, Wallach or Wallach? Wallach. Wallach. Thank you. Good. Uh, yeah, I'm horrible with names. And this film, well, I, I'm trying to contain my excitement, as you can tell. Uh, but we're going to go down the line and just get initial thoughts like we always do with this with the films. Glenn. When you first saw Good, Bad, and the Ugly, how'd you feel about this film? When I first saw it, I don't remember when I first saw it. I was pretty mm -hmm. young. Um, my first memory of it uh, is actually seeing it uh, at the student union when I was uh, in college. Oh, um, cool. They, they, they played it uh, for one of their Friday night movies, um, and I loved it. Um, mm -hmm. I know, I know I saw it before that. I just don't remember my initial reactions back then. But I know taking some of my friends, two of which were like, God, that was really long. I'm like, shut up. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those, are the, those are the same ones who would only watch anime if it was dubbed horribly into English. I'm like, oh, Ooh. subtitles. This, this is before you had any good actors doing voice work but yeah so um yeah it, it, it's one of my favorite westerns of all time awesome and uh mr paul salzer 
How about you, Sir Paul, when you first saw this uh, interesting film? <laughs> the first time I saw this was today. <laughs> Wait, seriously? Oh. Seriously, because you, I am not a Western guy. And you look in that I, I, the I am the whatever yes. you call it, the, that description does not entice me to want to watch this film. <laughs> <laughs> so I never watched it. I watched it because I wanted to expand my horizons. You give me this opportunity. And I said, okay. I'm 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 not I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to watch this western, and I liked it. I yes. really enjoyed it. Yes, I feel like Simon at the end of you know, the table. It's like surprise. I liked it. <laughs> no X's. <laughs> no, no X's for this. Well, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on some of this since it's with fresh eyes. Uh, <laughs> considering you are the horror guy, so I can understand. But I'll definitely be interested in some of your perspective on some of this stuff as we go forward tonight, today's episode. And Scotty D, good, bad, and the ugly. You always have a great story with a film. Do you have one for this one? I do. Hey. <laughs> it's not a very detailed story, but I do. Um, if there is a reason why I love Westerns to this day, uh, I credit that with two movies, uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and How the West Was Won. But I give the edge to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, this was uh, at a time, uh, set your minds way back, kids, to the 80s when um, all your all your TV stations, your major TV stations and your syndicated TV stations, yes, there was such a thing called syndicated TV stations, all uh, used to show movies during the week. Hey, there's nothing... Uh, ALF is a rerun? Good news. There's a movie. There's like two movies playing on different channels. And uh, Good and the Bad and the Ugly was this one that ran, I want to say, on... Uh, I don't think it ran on Channel 11, so I think it was Channel 5 WNEW in New York. Uh, and they, uh, and it, of course, they ran it over two nights and just threw tons of ads in it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because it was, the old cut of the movie was uh, two hours and 41 minutes, mm -hmm. and they didn't really cut anything. Um, and I saw this movie. Now, Westerns, for me, I always associated with that with, like, my older, older relatives, it was, they're kind of boring. I didn't quite get it. You know, I had, you know, I associated with them, with them, you know, talking around, like sitting around talking over the movie, just about inane bullshit and how they didn't like certain like types of people where I didn't understand what, what the problem was, you know, <laughs> like, you know, old values. Like, so you always think of it like you, you associate it with like this really like throwback way of, I was, of of operating at least from my perspective then i see this thing good the bad and the ugly comes on clint eastwood good the bad and the ugly i'm like hey cool i've heard of this movie i'm gonna take check it out and i'd seen this this is the first time i'd seen anything sergio leone or anything like this the first western i actually ever sat through and i watched both nights of it and I was just blown away immediately because you see this beautiful. Well, you see, well, you see like this big, wide, open vista. Well, cropped for TV, yeah. and then the screen is filled with like the ugliest face you've ever seen, <laughs> and it's, it it continues to shatter 
all the illusions of the Western. It has this epic, the same. It has an even bigger epic grandeur than all the John Ford movies. It has an even, you know, it has even more like action and and uh, and and you know set pieces like that than the Howard Hawks movies. And yet, it's turning everything on its end. Like, like there's good but there's not really that good nobody's a really a good guy here you know it's like so it puts all the notions of heroism on its end it's violent as hell you got into what the characters were really talking about like holy crap i've never seen anything like this in my life and this is like back when i was a kid i saw this movie probably the first time when i was like eight or nine years old i was hooked i immediately like sought out the other uh spaghetti westerns uh the sergio leone ones and um uh, it was hard to get other spaghetti westerns for a very long time until the gray market and then DVD happened. And uh, thankfully, it's a lot easier now. And uh, this is what really made me look, realize that westerns could be more than just the, you know, old farts talk, talking about about their racism uh, <laughs> and it could be like you know something really wild and original and it also made me look at those other movies that i never watched before with my own eyes and appreciate those more you know apart from with you know being able to like disassociate myself from it because this was disassociated from anything i had seen before so yeah i'm a huge fan i did not i did not get a chance to rewatch this movie mm-hmm. for the show tonight I didn't have time. I didn't have a chance to do it. I've seen the movie 60 times, so I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think outside of Paul, I think uh, a good number of us have watched this multiple times. I know uh, I, I rewatched it last night, and, and I was just excited about it as I did was the first time I ever watched it, which I was young. Uh, it was on cable. And I sat, you know, and you'd heard about it. And you're like, okay, well, we'll sit down and watch it. And, you know, I watched it on, on one of the movie channels or whatnot. And I'm engrossed in it. And all of a sudden it ended. I'm like, holy crap. I've been sitting here for over two and a half hours. I didn't even realize that. Because I was just so into the film. And, and oh, yeah. And re-watching it again. Very few films get me still as excited as if I'm watching it for the first time. And in, in fact, it's even better because you know what's coming. And so you just can't wait you know, for that part. You're like, oh, this is going to be the part. And so for me, this is one of my all-time favorite Westerns as well. And, uh, you know, that's I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about tonight because th- th- there's so much good stuff in this film, um, especially how it opens. Uh, I, I love how this film opens because even though it's called The Good, Bad, and The Ugly, we are first introduced to The Ugly. And, <laughs> and, and it's not a very long intro, is it, Paul? But, but what did you think of the introduction to The Ugly character? I thought it was great. I thought it was interesting that there was no dialogue for the whole beginning part of the film. And... Uh, the beginning part actually gave me something I never, I never knew. So I'm, I may have, have never watched the film, but mm-hmm. I've always heard the song. You know, the the good, the bad, and the ugly song. Right. And you know that 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 part that everybody remembers that. Yeah. 
I never knew what that was until I saw the film and then realized, oh, wow, those are coyotes. That's what it, that's the sound. Give me a break. I didn't know. Oh, my God. I, you have to watch this film and you have to watch it for how it's like right away that you get this wonderful wide shot. And then without even that weird transition that you normally get, this guy steps in front and it becomes a close up shot. And it's just beautiful, outstandingly beautiful. And, and that got you, that gets you into the film. And then you get introduced to this character that I originally thought, okay, this guy, this guy's the guy I'm going to hate throughout the film. And they, they changed me. They, they, they completely twisted me around. So yeah, they, they did a good job of introducing Tuco as this guy that you're supposed to hate. And then it, they just do a good job with him. I can't oh. gush over. And I have to say, this is my favorite Western too. Cause well, uh, this is probably the only Western. <laughs> so there. <laughs> yeah, I love the introduction to Tuco and that first opening scene because the sound design too. You you don't all you've got is the wind and these guys. You you don't have dialogue. You don't, in fact, you, for nine minutes and thirty seconds of this film, the first nine, you don't have any dialogue. I, <laughs> I, I figured it out. It, it's impressive, but. Uh, Glenn, what'd you think of the? I'm sure, there's one guy who goes. Uh, 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 oh, <laughs> that's not good dialogue. Okay. You're you're right. Well, there is Mr. Paul Selzer. I set the bar so high. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Simon. Remember, I'm 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 the Simon character here. It was awful. <laughs> Glenn, what'd you think of how they introduced Tuco's character? I mean, he doesn't get a log introduction, but they established that, yeah, he may be ugly, but he does have some skill, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's a for his for how his character progresses, it's a perfect introduction to him. Mm-hmm. He, he comes crashing through that window with what, a, like a turkey leg? Or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he took out three guys too, so you know he's talented. Uh, yeah. Scott, Scott, what do you think of, of the introduction to the ugly uh, that we get? Because his is pretty much the briefest one. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I mean, without you even, like, you have to really look at it to because you get a, a bigger glimpse of his character mm-hmm. as the film goes on. And, you know, yeah, the guy's a weasel. He's just like a total rat, you know? <laughs> but what's happening, like, these it's it's as uh, I mentioned, as Paul mentioned, you get that big vista, this ugly, ugly face, who is not the ugly of the thing. They all <laughs> go in there, they're hurting, blasting, blasting, blasting. This guy comes out, he's still holding his turkey leg, he's still doing this, that freeze frames on him, the ugly. No, he's like constantly running, constantly fighting. He's the ugly. His life is survival. Everybody else is like always. It's basically everybody's always trying to get ahead in this movie. And his is probably the most like lowliest, but it's the most honest. You know, everybody like, you know, the other guys we're going to meet. One guy kills for a living, but has his own code. Uh, the Clint Eastwood character has is always like manipulating and have got something something ahead of somebody else, but he has his own code. Tuco doesn't have shit. <laughs> he doesn't have shit for a code, but he's constantly surviving and constantly running and just trying to stay just right out of range of that bullet that he knows has his name on it. And <laughs> that's the thing that you get right as soon as he's introduced in the film. 
Yeah, you, you do. You get that. And, you know, the fact they have him offering three guys who come after him make you realize he's not just going to be the schlep of the three, you know, right off the bat. And also, yeah, you're right. Now that you mentioned it, Tuco's character out of everyone is probably the most genuine, <laughs> the, the, the mm-hmm. most honest character because he he has no shits to give about what you might think of him. <laughs> Uh, because uh you know you get that uh scene later on with Tuco and we'll get to the other characters a little bit but I want to talk about Tuco more because you're right he his character really has the most interesting probably growth over this whole film but you get that scene where he he makes it to the um um well we'll get to that in a little bit where he gets into the shop uh because we find out later uh with the good let's talk about Mr. Eastwood and the good Who's not that good, is he, Glenn? <laughs> I not really know. <laughs> not only that, who's he working with? Uh, he's working with Tuco. He's working with the ugly. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what did you think about, about Blondie and, and him working with Tuco? Is that a little bit of a, a turn for our, you know, Western hero kind of working with someone who you've, you think is kind of supposed to be the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely different. I mean, there, there is no, there is no like real hero in this one like you get in most Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in that regard, especially when, you know, this is 66 where, I mean, a lot of your Westerns are, are still on the lines of, you know, a lot of the John Wayne is starting to get in his decline and stuff like that, but you had very much the good guy, bad guy. And this kind of says, eh, not as much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it surprised me the first time. <clears throat> excuse me. It surprised me the first time I saw that, and then you realize, oh wait, he he's working with Tuco. That that's a bit of a twist, Paul. Uh, this was your first watch. What'd you think of uh, the fact that our quote unquote hero or, or Eastwood, who's usually associated with being the hero, is actually doing this with the ugly? <laughs> At first, I didn't. I honestly did not like it. I I like my heroes to be up there her road you know like like glenn said i I set my bar pretty high and and so yeah but uh eventually i kind of saw what they were looking at as being good in Mm -hmm. the character and i think that was important for me to realize was that in the situation and of all the people around him he is good but at, at right off at the beginning i didn't like him because it was like wow you are you are a cheat. You are a scumbag. You're you're cheating people for the money. You know the the good citizens of of all these little townships and, and you know for all the money and the, and he just kept doing it. He's working with the with the ugly guy. Later on, he works with the bad guy. So it was like, wow, you you are not you are not a hero. And I mean, like, and I kind of sort of blamed him for the anti heroes of today. Thinking back, you know, it's like, is he the reason why everybody likes the anti hero? And but uh, yeah, eventually he got to the point where he did he did grow on me, and that that sudden realization of of realizing that in this world that is that is the good, right? So. Right. Yeah, especially in this time uh, period that it takes place, that that is more of a good than yeah. some of or many of the other people around. Scotty D, how about you and, and Blondie working with Tuco and and the idea he's an anti-hero? Would you agree with that? Yeah, he absolutely is an anti-hero, and like uh, Paul just mentioned, like was this the reason why 
the anti-hero is so popular today. It's part of it. Yeah. This is really the first. Uh, uh, yeah, I would say probably this was the first real uh, introduction to an anti-hero that I had seen. Okay, yes, Han Solo. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> this guy's a lot worse than Han Solo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so maybe Han Solo is technically first, but let's be honest. This guy, <laughs> Han Solo is Sir Galahad compared to <laughs> this guy. Um, the, uh, so, um, yeah, this, I mean, uh, yeah, he's, it's, it's the good, but all like, um, all, it's all a matter of perspective and, you know, it's all a matter of relativity in, as you said, Mark, this world that uh, Sergio Leone creates, he takes that, he takes any kind of sheen that was on the mythological Old West, which I'm sure are movies that he loved, uh, he takes it all off, just strips it completely away. And uh, real, off these people where He's not good, like as you and I would perceive it. But he's the best they. But he's the best that you're going to get in a world like this. Mm-hmm. And if you think this, and if you think he's bad, who? Wait a few years when until the wild bunch comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Those people are oh. assholes. <laughs> you, you won't look at Ernie Borgnine the same way again. That's. <laughs> So yeah, we covered the good. Well, you know, and they say good, but looking at it, I don't know if his character is actually good. But out of a lot of the people in the world, he's fair. <laughs> you, you, maybe not necessarily good, but fair. Well, no, because did you ever notice? And now maybe it's just me, and you guys could tell me it's wrong. But did you ever notice when he off guys, even when he would ambush them, he'd let them know he was there first. Uh did you notice uh, that? I mean, it's a little he bit of a reach. So, well, <laughs> well, he, he barely. I mean, like, bang. No, I'm not saying he was saint-like or that he gave him a moment you, to But he wouldn't snipe you from the bushes or back. I mean. No, yeah. no. He, he, he's shooting guys, you know, mostly in the front. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he hated he, he must have hated hats because I think this film hated hats because he kept shooting off hats on people. It was well, like, pew, pew, pew. Well, that was part of the script. <laughs> he'd shoot the rope and then he'd shoot people's hats to make people hesitate before drawing their gun. Yeah, and because he was, he was he's a good enough shot to shoot the hat off of my head. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, he could shoot the rope that's around Tuco's neck, which I think that would have been sufficient, wouldn't it? <laughs> which I always thought was hilarious. Because did you ever notice, even though uh, it was, you know, the, the bounty on Tuco's head went higher, yeah. the, the charges were different depending on which town he was in? Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. bit. So it wasn't just me, but it, it, it changed every time in every town. I mean, uh, you know, the first one, it was like this long list. And then the second one, it was like, uh, was it, you know, um, cheating at cards? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I love the Tuco character, but even still, Blondie, uh, you know, Scotty D. We talk about him being an anti-hero. I mean, he's got this partnership with the Ugly, but 
it comes to a point where he starts questioning whether or not he needs to get new meat. Doesn't he? <laughs> he kind of I mean, t- like, well, he's he kind of everybody- turns on the ugly, doesn't he? Well, everybody's using, yeah. you know what, this is an unfortunate thing that, and um, if you start to get a little more cynical mm-hmm. in the world, you start to kind of notice this, that uh, I think that it kind of shows, uh, it, it, for me, it kind of mirrors how you look look at the world when you're a kid, mm-hmm. to how the, when you look at the world as an adult. When you look at the world as a kid, you see clearly defined lines uh of you know good and evil and stuff like that and when you start and when you're an adult especially if you have to like be in the workplace and do this and do that you start to notice a pattern in that everybody seems to be using everybody to get ahead Mm -hmm. in some way or another uh it's that's not necessarily always true but if, if you let cynicism take over that can definitely be your worldview Mm-hmm. And there are certainly people out there who do view the world as that. And I think this world is – this version of the West takes that idea and uh, makes an extreme about it because I think he does have affection for the character. I think even in the end of the movie, he has an affection for the character, mm-hmm. uh, which well, I'm sure you're gonna, we're going to get to later. Uh, at the end of the movie, you know, I'm sure he has an affection for the character. doesn't mean he's not going to always say, like, but I always have to be the one that has, that's one step ahead. Right. I always – and I'm sorry, as no matter how much affection I have, have for you, you're only as uh, – it only goes as far as how much use you are to me. Yeah. <laughs> and that is that's cruel. That is. I and I don't look at the world that way. Mm-hmm. Uh but I see a lot of people who do and I see a lot of ways in which the world does operate like that and does reward that. And uh that's kind of uh the goods stance is that he uh, and I'm sure he doesn't give two shits for Tuco at the beginning of the movie. I think he does at the end. It doesn't really change the way he operates though no it it doesn't at all but no you're right he doesn't give as he doesn't care as much for tuco in the beginning because he lives leaves his ass in the desert like 70 miles like you know if you hold your breath you'll make it it's like holy shit dude (laughs) you know yeah but that did give us well i mean well i mean he's only good as good like because look at this like when uh tuco actually makes it out of the desert catches up to him always a survivor and holds him at gunpoint nope you can't shoot and so the guy that he was working with then, on mm-hmm. the same scheme, he was working with somebody else on so this thing where he'd capture them, ju- shoot them just as they're about to get hanged, well, lest the guy get hanged. What kind of remorse does he show for the guy who actually gets hanged? Well, he gets the eye twitch. He gets the eye twitch and says, like, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's a, tough break. That's a tough break, you know? That's it. That's all this person gets. I mean... <laughs> With what I love about the uh, abandonment scene was another development with Tuco, who, again, as we mentioned before, I think is the one that grows the most throughout this whole film, though there isn't a huge amount. But we get a more introduction to him, and he, he gets into this uh, um, shop. And I, what I love about this is because even though he's the ugly, he's not dumb, is he, Glenn? Because he's looking at revolvers and and. He kind of assembles his own gun, basically. Yeah, which and I'm just I'm, I'm blanking on it because I'm, I'm just I'm remembering the fact that the whole scene apparently was improvised. 
um, because he had no idea. He knew nothing about guns. Did he really? Yeah, he knew nothing. <laughs> they they just told him just to do whatever, and he improvised this perfectly where he just yeah kind of puts the stuff together. Um, he makes a Tuco gun. <laughs> pretty much, yeah, he makes a Tuco gun. I, I love that scene because it showed some depth to his character that he's not just the ugly guy, you know, who's looking out, you know, he he's actually has some knowledge to him, uh, which I, I love that whole scene with the, with the, um, with the convenience store guy, basically Scotty D, what'd you think about this? You think it's added kind of an extra level for Tuco to let you know that he's not just a, a, uh, you know, a thug, if you will. It's, um, you don't live as long as Tuco has without developing skills. Mm-hmm. And it's all that survival thing that uh, not to not to beat a dead horse here or, or beat my point into the ground or whatever, but it's all those survival skills. It's that idea that, you know, there's, there's a lot of green kids who get out there and they start shooting shit up and everything like that. And yeah. Yeah. And they're, usually dead in a few years. Mm-hmm. Duco looks like he's been doing this for a while. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I mean, even in even in uh, the 60s, Eli Wallach was not a young man. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, middle-aged, I'd say, at that point. Or, well, not yeah. even quite that for him. The dude lived almost 100. But uh, but just, just shy of it. And... Um, so you don't live as that long. Like you, you learn to survive in, in you learn to thrive in your field. And uh, in, in, if you want to get ahead in any field, if your field is, you know, being a seamstress, you learn all the skills of the trade. If your if your field is being a lawyer, you learn all the skills. If your field is being a good for nothing outlaw son of a bitch, <laughs> you learn everything. You know how to you know how to survive. You know how to survive on your own. You know how to bandage up your wounds. You know how to you know uh, rob the right people. You know how to assemble guns. You know how all this stuff. And so this guy, he's a total snake. But the thing about snakes, they're kind of hard to kill. <laughs> and that's kind of something that Tuco kind of prides himself on. He's always running, always kind of like, like seems like a scared animal at a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But a, a, a scared cornered animal can be pretty ferocious and will often draw upon their own strengths in order to make it and i think that's what you're seeing he's developed these skills uh as much as much as uh uh the clint eastwood's character has yeah I, I i agree he just well and then you get the scene too where he gets the drop on blondie uh because he gets his own minions and they track blondie down and uh, uh eastwood takes out three of his minions but he gets the jump on him <laughs> By by sneaking up behind through the window, if you will, um, which, you know, our good guy doesn't see coming. So he does know how to survive and he's a slippery SOB. Now, <laughs> and the one person that we haven't touched yet that we'll talk about right now is Angel Eyes, a.k.a. The Bad, played by Lee Van Cleef. This boy's introduction still gives me chills. Paul? How'd you feel about when we first meet and, and those first few scenes with the bad? 
I loved him as a villain uh, because it, it really he did feel like the bad. I mean, there was there was no there was no watering down of this character. I thoroughly enjoyed him. I love the idea that they they gave him the nickname of Angel Eyes because it kind of is that weird juxtaposition. You know, he's got these heavenly eyes, but and it's just it was a good character. I loved that they didn't they and he was smart. He he was able to uh, basically go in there and get the information that he needed, and then he ends up double crossing his his employer. But he does it in such a way that fits within that code of of the bad guy. And I thought that was just that was smart. And and it was like if I was going to be a bad guy, that's the bad guy that I want to be, huh. even though I don't like being the bad guy. <laughs> Well, in this scene that we first see where he comes up on this family with this guy that he's been employed to kill, we don't get a lot of uh, dialogue or anything, but man, he just, he just exudes, you know, he's bad, you know, and he, he comes in and, and we get that scene where they're eating soup too. And, uh, Glenn, that for that part where we get to introduce to the evil and he's sitting there eating the soup. That, that scene with really no dialogue, isn't that just like a great way to set up just how bad this guy is? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's a great setup uh, for his character. You know, and, and well, and then he gets that surprise. What I love is that expression he gets when the guy mentions the gold box. <laughs> because yeah. he didn't know about the gold box. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, but, no, I'm going to play this off. Wait a right. minute. You know, it, it, because he was a smart villain, he was able to get the inf- extra information, and he realized a little bit more of what his employer was was trying to do, and so he that's why he was able to turn on on him within his code. And so, yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, because the guy offers him a thousand bucks to go off his employer, so he offers yeah. the guy through the table, no less, <laughs> into the head. Which right there too, I'm just like, oh damn, okay, this guy, <laughs> he, he's got some serious precision, and then he offs his uh, his employer. But yeah, I just love the expression he gets and how Van Lee Van Cleef plays this. Scotty D, how'd you feel about Lee Van Cleef and his introduction into the film? Uh, he is a much more refined looking person but you see this person and you know he's bad news because he's all in black and uh you know there it it does play this film i mentioned before that it kind of like you know it totally like rewrites the rules but it also plays up a lot of the old images Mm -hmm. of the old of the old western so yeah the villain is all in black that's how you know he's bad (laughs) and um he's uh uh, and he does this thing, and he just has this thing, and he just very calmly there to do his business. There's no malice in it, but for some reason, and this is why the thing I've always had with villains, for some reason, a villain just can't be a villain. Mm-hmm. They have to have all this bullshit that goes with it. Ah! They do. I mean, think about it. Think about that. And you can like take this, and you can even take this into the characters from like something like say like Pulp Fiction. Okay, they have a job to do. All right. Well, then why do they have to like be like all menacing and be a badass beforehand? The dude's gonna get shot anyway. 
what the hell? Like, oh, he'll know better now. <laughs> I mean, what's what the hell? You know, so, you know, it's like, no, why, do the, why does he have to be all menacing and everything? But he has to, you know, he has his professionalism, so I have to have this image on me and everything like that. And he also has this code of conduct where if someone offers him money for a job, he has to see the job through. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't have to see he saw so what what you see in the beginning is that he has given been given money to kill this guy. So he says, I'm sorry, I always have to see the job through. But the guy offers him money to kill the employer. Well, he kills the guy anyway because I have to see the job through. And then he goes to the employer. Well, I'm sorry, I have to see the job through. Why? <laughs> Who's going to give you a negative Yelp review on this one? (laughs) He's dead. Like you can't, he can't just be a villain and just be a villain through and through. If he does, he becomes the ugly. He becomes Mm -hmm. just that survival instinct, uh, common cockroach character. He has to have this BS code of conduct. And, even if it doesn't really rely on logic, but make no mistake, he is evil as hell. And you can even see it after he kills his employer. He takes a delight in it. He takes a, he has a sadistic delight, which is kind of amusing because Lee Van Cleef from this movie, you know, Clint Eastwood would go on and he become his own star. Eli Wallach, he would become a huge character actor in movies. Well, he was already in other movies, but I mean, he would become an even bigger character actor for decades to come. Lee Van Cleef, his, his career was given such a boost and he just kept doing these spaghetti Westerns usually as the hero (laughs) or at least the anti-hero, you know? Oh yeah. All those movies, you know, uh, death rides a horse. And I think certain, uh, Sertana Savada, one of them, <laughs> he did those and, you know, the big gun down and all that stuff. And he was usually the good, the good guy in this one. He is pure evil. And with that becomes, comes this very hypocritical, mm-hmm. um, established, accepted way of doing things. Yeah. Which is, you know, if you look look just beyond the surface, is like, you know what? It's all BS. You're just a sadist. You know, I like that about this guy. That's this character. Oh, I think I, that that was a really clever way to paint a villain in the movie. I I love all three of these characters. I think they're just written so well, and they have more depth than you might expect from a western, uh, in, in many ways. Uh, it, you know, and and we don't get too much into the backstory of pretty much uh, the only person is Tuco. Is we actually get any kind of backstory with uh, the other two? They're pretty much straightforward, good and the bad. And you know, tu- Tuco is the one that's got. We learn about his family with the scene where um, you know after the desert where he was just about to kill Blondie. Um, we, we learn about his family and everything. We don't really get that with either one of these other two characters at all, uh, which I've always found interesting, you know, I, with this. I like that because I think it keeps those two extremes. You know, you're supposed to have the, the, the bad and you're supposed to have the, eh, maybe a little bit good. Uh, and then you have the guy that bridges them together. And be- between them, the Tuco character is, is how we can get the, basically it gives permission for the, for Clint to be the, the good and only the good because the we don't have to worry about his story 
we're getting Tuco's story, so at least we're getting that. And with the with Angel Eyes, we're it's just the same thing in the opposite direction. He doesn't have to have a background or story because we have Tuco's story, you know? Right. And, and so it just basically gives them permission to be at the extremes. And I think it was clever to have the three characters because the normal dynamic of good versus evil, you know, it would just be, mm-hmm. you couldn't, you couldn't do the same thing. You would have to dive into their backgrounds and their motivations and with the, with the ugly character being there, it's just a, it's a smart, it was a smart plot thing. I, I liked it. Well, and, and it's interesting because you have good and bad. So you actually have this character I think, you know, how a lot of movies, I always try to think about, you know, which character, maybe the audience, you know, the movies being told from, you know, to the audience, who are they supposed to be in the film, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And I honestly think you don't expect it in the beginning, but you're supposed to be Tuco. <laughs> so, Glenn, would you say Tuco is actually the one that you kind of latch onto the most or that maybe they're intending that the audience latches onto, though you might not expect it in the beginning? Or am I off on that? Um, I think he's the one that is the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that does, you know, it attracts the attention. Um, I mean, in no way is he meant to be uh, the person you root for, but I think some people probably do. <laughs> um, and again, that's because, you know, it's, it's, yeah, he's a weasel, but I mean, technically they're all kind of weasels. Right. Um, just that, you know, one of them isn't quite as weaselly as the rest. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely, I mean, I think he is by far the most interesting character of the three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I find most interesting about, and, and it always surprised me when I first watched it because I hadn't seen, you know, the movie posters, nothing when I was young, I still watched it, but today still watch it. I think it's interesting. They put it against the backdrop of the civil war. And I get the impression that even though you have these three guys at odds at each other throughout this film, there's a back and forth and one's on the brink of death and the other, at least between the, you know, the ugly and, and blondie, uh, it's set on the Civil War, and every time they look at the at all the guys in the Civil War, they get this feel. You get this feeling like they're looking at him, going, "What the hell are you guys doing?" <laughs> Paul, did, did you get that feeling, or that surprised you? It was set, you know, where it was in the time frame with the Civil War still going on. Yeah, uh, well, it it kind of is. Uh, it is a hard uh, thing, but I I did notice that as well. And it might be just an observation of, okay, so, so maybe they're kind of like the audience too, where they're watching in, in surprise and awe at, at this life that's going around. Because even despite the Civil War, and that this is true of the Civil War, even though we have these warring sides, they still had citizens going on with their own lives, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of trying to survive and, and, and that was kind of like symbolic of, of throughout the movie. You they would constantly refer to like the cannon fire, and you would hear the cannon fire, but it'd always be in the distance. And then you would see sometimes the explosions here and there, and then you would see the sh- soldiers, but they were never like really in the in the middle of it until they got to that one scene where they were kind of showing the battle. Right. And up to that up to that point, it just seemed like th- they were in the background, and and so it was kind of my way of interpreting that that 
people go on despite of what's happening around them. You know, they have their daily lives. And, and like um, Scott had said, this is kind of like everyone is trying to survive. And that was kind of the point of, of showing them this, this type mm-hmm. of dynamic. So, yeah, uh, that was a good observation. And I saw it, but I, I couldn't put it into words until just now. So, cool. Yeah, I, I, them setting it. And it even plays in a part because our heroes find themselves in a POW camp. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what would you think about this effect? It's set in the Civil War. And, and, and do you expect your guys actually like being end up being pulled into certain parts of this war well there's so this is such a fascinating part part of the story precisely because a lot of a lot of these movies either take place after the civil war or they just don't touch on it at all uh and uh okay first of all a humorous confession whenever i get mixed up in my head over which side was the blue and which side was the gray i remember the scene where they have where Tuco and the man with no name see the soldiers coming. <laughs> yes. And they say, uh, oh, who, what are they wearing? Gray. Okay, Jay General. What's his name? Lee. Lee. Okay. <laughs> and, and then, of course, the brilliant part where the guys just start slapping off dust. No, blue. We're the North. Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that's actually how I keep it straight in my head. That's whatever I get confused because sometimes there's shameful lapses in my public school education. And, uh, but, uh, the, um, but, uh, okay. No, the great thing about that is, and it brings up that scene. Yeah. Joe knows, uh, I called him Joe. Uh, the man with no name knows who the people are, knows what's going on. Yeah, oh, he... Joe actually is called Joe in Fistful of Dollars. People don't think – a lot of people don't notice that. <laughs> but well, he, he drops that line too because he's like, hey, Blondie, God, God shines on us. And he goes – God shines on idiots or something. <laughs> <laughs> he has this thing, so he knows who he is and everything like that. But let's face it, where our three main characters are in this movie, they don't have time for anybody's stupid war. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Especially a civil war. Oh, come on. <laughs> what, you want us to fight for a cause? <laughs> Get out of here. You know, they don't like having said, you know, and the funny thing is, is that uh, though, but they find themselves being put into this, and it becomes one of the defining moments of there are two good-ish characters, the good and the ugly, uh, mm-hmm. and when they uh, dynamite the bridge there. Oh yeah, later on, yeah, when they have they, to dynamite the bridge, they'll have to. Di- uh, they're they're they find themselves POWs, and then they find themselves like getting to know the general, who is like on death's door. And he says, "We've been fighting over this same." Uh, stu- um, what? Turn your ranks, boy. It's captain. Yeah. It's yeah, captain. captain. Okay. <laughs> As I said, I didn't have a chance to rewatch it before the show. Cut me some slack there, Simon. No, Mister. that's okay. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a line in the movie. Yeah. That's a line, exactly. It's, okay, again, sorry. <laughs> and I'm yeah, Simon. No. Get it right. I should have. I should have. See, I should. He's I Howie Mandel. I should have rewatched. Okay. The. Uh... <laughs> but anyway, so anyway, no, no, no. They, but they, but to get back on the point, there, he, he, they're, they're dynamiting the bridge, 
they find themselves actually fighting for a better cause. And mm-hmm. they don't want to, but they wind up doing it because even the guy who's ranking the army notes the futility of war. Right. He knows the, how stupid it is to keep fighting like this over land or whatever. And, and, and over, pro- oh, oh, well, we can be over the, the river if we do this, or they'll be over the river if we don't. Who cares? You know, <laughs> just this, uh, you know, he knows the futility of it. Having said that, I have a question to pose a lot of the people because they get to, and they wind up fighting for a cause with that, and they wind up doing it, and the guy can die with some peace. At the, that point in the movie, the show's called Spoiler Room, people. Yeah. Um, oh, no. I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, and, and I always think, okay, now, as I said, at this point in their lives, nobody has time for this stupid war. Mm-hmm. And okay, Tuco is obviously Mexican. But even saying that, do you see any of the characters as ever ever having fought in the war in the past? Maybe because we don't know. Mm. Who can you see as actually? Because let's face it, in the Civil War, there were people who were disbarred. There were mm-hmm. lots of desertions. Um, who do you see as maybe at one point in their lives, maybe actually fighting in that war? Angel Ooh. eyes. <laughs> Angel <laughs> eyes. Yeah, Glenn, who would you say out of our three characters were any of them actually fighting in a war? If so, who would you say? Out of the three, I would probably say Angel Eyes. Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, maybe the man with no name. Definitely yeah. not Tuco. No, <laughs> Tuco. I'm that way. I'm 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 saying Tuco. No way in hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, even just. Even disregarding his nationality, that he didn't really have a dog in the fight, north, south. What, what do I care? It's like my damn country, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, not not even like this. Just even discounting that, uh, the man with no name, I can see fighting in the early days, and then deserting when he just got disillusioned mm-hmm. by how pointless it all was angel eyes i can see as somebody actually gaining in the ranks and being kicked out for being or possibly even uh court-martialed or arrested for being too sadistic well yeah it, it would make sense too because of the scene. he's a real andersonville type guy <laughs> yeah he really is and, and it would make sense because of the scene where they're in the prison camp He's actually got an ally already and guys lined up. I mean, he, you know, it's like he knows out of the three guys, he knows this system, mm-hmm. you, you know, and he, he's played it because he established himself as an officer at this, you know, outpost. And he fell into that part, a higher ranking part, pretty darn easy, didn't he? <laughs> He did, and granted, he probably talks a good game, but still, I imagine he may have had some buddies already on the end to help sell his rank. Either that, or he just knows how to conduct himself because he's been there before, and like, okay, right. well, they don't know me in this state. Uh, you know. Well, you know, communication sucked back then, so who exactly. knows it's as far like, as it's not, orders. It's not like you could, like, text somebody, you know, a, a picture, <laughs> like, you seen this dude? <laughs> well, what did you Angel Eyes, did you have a picture of like why you, you he might 
be a guy like that or I just I just thought because of the way he conducted himself and definitely like all of you guys Tuco would not be uh simply for the fact that the very first thing he said was we're here to enlist and I'm <laughs> I'm assuming that anybody that has actually gone through the war and has left the war not that would not be the first thing they say they would come up with some other excuse <laughs> Other than that, so that what to me was he's not he's never been there. Well, yeah, because he walks up to the the captain at the bridge and says, "We're here to enlist." And Blondie oh, looks at him like he wants to hit him. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! He gives him that look like, "What the fuck? What? <laughs> you stupid idiot!" <laughs> that, that's not what you want to say. He's like, "Just shut up already! You already got us into a a prison camp where." Uh, <laughs> You know, and I loved how the paths kept crossing because when they get in that prison camp, suddenly there's the bad, you know, there's Angel Eyes, mm-hmm. and Angel Eyes beats the snot out of Tuco um, <laughs> in another great scene. There are just so many great moments in this film. Um, yeah. You, you know, it, it it's tough to, to not talk about them all because you get that scene where they're, and what I love is it's set against the Civil War. But at no time, Sergio Leone, they do a great job of not painting a great picture for either side. (laughs) Did did you get that feeling, Glenn, with this? You know, some films where there's there's a civil war, you always get that feeling, well, one side's winning or the other. Do you really get a feeling of of a good look at the civil war and who's winning? (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, I mean, everyone looks bedraggled, which is great because that's how they should. I, I always hate in, in movies with Civil War, especially when you have these guys who have been, you know, at a post for however long and the uniforms are all crisp and tidy and clean. And, you know, everyone looks like they just shaved that morning and, you know, and they're all like happy and like, ah, you know, let's sing a song around a campfire. I'm like, fuck that. No, because we're in the middle of, of a freaking pretty much like a desert. You know, and they look like it. They look like they've been sitting out there for, you know, for weeks, just sweating their asses off over this stupid bridge um, that they had to blow up twice <laughs> because they screwed up the first time. Oh, did they really? Yeah, because uh, because the, the crew was all Spanish. Uh, <laughs> so there was communication issues and they, they blew it up before they were ready to film. Oh, so no. Leona's just like. Take lunch, and they had to, while they were at lunch, they had to rebuild the bridge so they could blow it up again. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. There's there's a lot of great trivia with this one. I mean, Wallach almost died numerous times. <laughs> the, the whole the whole first scene where he's uh, supposed to be shot off the the rope. Yeah. Uh, they, they had there's a little charge on the rope to make the rope break, and it spooked his horse. Oh no! And it like took off at a dead gallop <laughs> with him on, and he's, his hands are actually really tied behind his back mm-hmm. and the horse went for like a good mile before he, they finally got it to stop. Oh, well, he's, just, he's just hanging on with his knees. Oh shit. Um, the, I the heard scene, that story. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the scene where he cuts his handcuffs with the train. Mm-hmm. Um, Leon wanted it to look real, look like him. So he it, without a stuntman. So he was actually there and they did two takes and when he looked at the, they were looking at footage of the first take and realized that there's a, a metal step that you, you know, to get up on the train cars missed what? his head by about four inches or so. Oh, 
And then in the final scene at the end with, with the bags of money, they, they used acid so that when he would hit it with a shovel, it would break open. Yeah. And they stored the acid in a bottle of soda. Uh, it was like a, br- a, a brand of lemon soda that Wallach drank. And oh, he started to take a sip of it and then realized just at the last second that, oh, this isn't soda. This is something else. <laughs> he almost drank so it's like the movie tried repeatedly to kill him. <laughs> but, which, which I think is just so fitting because of the character of Tuco, mm-hmm. who constantly almost dies so many times. <laughs> but just, I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, just, I can imagine asking him, so was it hard getting the character? Nope. It was not hard getting this character because I almost died numerous times. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I had heard one of those stories. I had not heard the other one, so that was immensely entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yes, we we get to the uh, we have these three characters. They're crossing paths. They they survive the civil war. They take part in a battle in the civil war. Uh, <laughs> we get to see both sides. We get that final confrontation between these three. And this this film is two hours, 41 minutes. I think there's a longer cut of, two, what, two hours and 58 minutes or something, I think. Yeah, it's like a three-hour cut. I have to admit, I have not. I, have, I, watched, I watched the three-hour cut. Yeah, I've got it on Blu-ray, which looks freaking phenomenal. I know, and now I have to buy it again because apparently the one that's about to come out is even better. <laughs> <laughs> But we get the, the the final showdown. They finally make it to the cemetery, and you know the the man with no name has kept the name, and he he gave Tuco the wrong name because he knew he was going to double cross him. And while they're there, the bad shows up, and we get the final standoff. And if there is a a summary, a great summary, I think of the cinematography, editing, everything about this film. I think if you look at this final sequence from when uh, the, the uh, Blondie picks up the stone and s- puts the name, quote unquote, of the grave on the stone, that whole segment is just beautiful. Scott, what do you think of this final showdown between the three, uh, uh, good, bad, and the ugly? I mean, is this this scene and everything, the way about it is just, is it a good payoff for the what you go through with this film? Oh, yeah. I mean... Leone loved basically kind of uh, there's a lot of people working in Italian cinema that were doing their bit. What he did with the spaghetti westerns that was different uh, and he was pretty much the one that kind of started the whole spaghetti western thing and like then they just like made like a thousand of them after him. But the one that he did so well is that he would take these uh, time-honored traditions and he would put it up another on another level. Mm. So this takes the showdown. You know, take a movie like High Noon. That whole thing is like about a showdown. And then you have like all these other movies that are about a showdown. And they're meeting the person at dawn and at noon in the middle of the town square. Well, this isn't in the middle of town square. This is in the middle of a cemetery. They're all surrounded by these tombstones and death is in the air. And it's not just like you see ones on one end of the street ones on the other side of the street no we get the whole thing where you get this musical scoring with 
they really show you the distance between them and how evenly spaced they are. And it's not between two people. It's between three people. <laughs> I mean, everything is so like, like it's that thing where you see like, it's something you have seen before, but you watch it and you say, I've never seen anything like this before <laughs> because <laughs> what because what he is doing is so next level. Just taking that tradition and like putting it into a whole other realm and really pumping up the operatic mythology of the thing. And um, that's well, what he's yeah. doing. Well, yeah, because you get a good, like, solid minute or something of cuts cutting between them. First, wide shots, medium shots, close-ups of their faces, close-up of their guns, the music starting to build. I, Oh, man, Glenn, how would you feel about this final sequence? Was it a payoff? And, and would you say this was, like, a great culmination of this long movie you go through? Oh, the end is perfect. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love the ending, the whole... I mean, that standoff is just great. And then the way it plays out is is perfect. Yeah, you're right. Because it, it, it and what's funny is the way it plays out, you you look at it, you go, oh, my God, that happened. And you're like, of course it did. You're like, did you not pay attention during the whole movie? Of course, this is how it's going to end. Paul, since this was your first viewing, what did you think of this final sequence in this showdown? Uh, it was amazing. Uh, I also was like, oh, wow, I, I've seen this in other movies. And, and I know that this came first. So it was kind of like, oh, so that's where it came from. And <laughs> it, was, it was very interesting. Uh, I also I just wanted to add a fact that there. Yeah, so if any of you guys are interested in gamer theory or game mm-hmm. theory, they have actually got formulas based on this type of duel. Uh, I think it's called Trill or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Uh, but they've got actual formulas based on accuracy of the person and and uh, all sorts of weird little things. And you can determine who will win uh, the fight based on these mathematical formulas. And j- that tells you how much of an influence this one scene has had on people that somebody actually spent the time to come up with abstract, mathematical formulas to prove who's going to win <laughs> <laughs> which i mean like you said if you've been paying cl- close attention to the plot you knew who was going you, to win. you knew who was going to win because it, yeah but it was it was still yeah it was still it was ah it's still how he it kind of was felt like he was cheating <laughs> to me it, did. it felt like he was cheating <laughs> Well, but he's, he was a step ahead because he's the good. So, I know, you know, I know. And, but then and you I could love... have said the, the bad could have done the same thing because he's smart. And... Yeah. Well, and, and, and this oh. is the spoiler room, folks. So, yes, as you can imagine, in the end, the bad gets it. <laughs> not only not only, though, does our good the good shoot him. He shoots him again and he falls into a grave. <laughs> Shallow, he, too. <laughs> He shoots his hat into the grave. I told you he hates hats. <laughs> and he shoots his gun into the thing. What? What? What is that? Is Clint Eastwood that lazy that he can't pick up something? No, I'm going to just shoot it right in. Bam! Shoot that one right in. Bam! I'm going to shoot the dirt right in. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bullets cost money. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, this is during during the Civil War too. You would think that where where are they going to get all these bullets? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they got they still got leftovers from when they blew the bridge up. Probably exactly. So. That's it. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, so yeah, and then we mentioned the score. We have to mention the score quick because it's so beautiful, so perfect, so such another level added to this film. I mean, there are spots though where you get no musical score, but when it does come in, uh, uh, Glenn, the the score for this film, how do you feel about? It? Did you feel like it really adds that extra level of emotion? Absolutely, the score is. Beautiful. I mean, I, I love Sergio Leone. That's one thing that his movies always have. It's just a great, great musical composition to him. Yeah, it, it it adds so much to this film that is already epic. It there's a lot of great stuff the way this film is just from put together all its elements. I love it. And uh, now I want to go through and I asked our uh, crew members as always to uh, bring something to the table if they would like uh, to discuss. And uh, we'll start with uh, we'll start with Paul first, since this was his new, new first viewing. Paul, uh, what topic or subject or question did you have maybe for the group tonight uh, that you wanted to bring? Well, since this is my first viewing of it, I think it would be appropriate to ask, what do you think the legacy of this film is? Uh, to modern day films or even outside of films it can be like comic books and stuff like that so what do you think the impact of this film is has been on on our cultural society oh nice glenn why don't you go first what, what kind of impact do you think this had none wow. <laughs> no that's a lie okay um, <laughs> had no impact at all um this really changed uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, these the you can't look at it as just this film by itself. It's 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 this trio of films. These uh, the spaghetti westerns that you got with this and uh, fistful of dollars, a few dollars more. Um, it it changed the way that Americans had viewed most westerns because, like I said, most westerns were the John Wayne type, and it was this is a lot more. Uh, well, first of all, they're more violent generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not necessarily that like lots of people die, but it's just it's it's just grittier. Um, it's it's. I mean, the fact is, you would never have a John Wayne movie where the bad guy is going to shoot down uh, some dude in his kitchen and then kill one of his sons too. That right. wouldn't, you know, that generally wouldn't happen. Um, I'm, there might be one I'm thinking of where, at least if it did, they would probably wouldn't show it. They would show like, oh, you know, you know, the kid got killed too, but. Um, and I, I think that changed a bit, uh, just the whole feel of the Western and it, it made Westerns, uh, it, it introduced a grittier feel to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you still, you always still had, there was so little, uh, even back then when it, you know, you didn't have the great special effects we have now, but still it's like John Wayne shirts were always clean and crisp <laughs> you know, and, and stuff like that. And this was, you know, people out sweating in the desert look like they were out sweating in the desert. Mm. You know, it's like you, I watched tons of old Westerns, you know, and they're out driving, riding through the desert for days. And they just look like they just like, they just walked out of an air conditioned trailer. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas, you know, these guys, it's like, you know, I mean, they're all sweating. I mean, the you know, Eastwood does it a lot in this one, but uh, this is when his, his star was starting to rise. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, he had his whole, negotiate his his issues with the movie because he didn't like being part of an ensemble cast and blah 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 and i'm the star and or me um but um i definitely think it did, did have some effect and i mean it, it had a huge effect on eastwood's career as well mm-hmm. 
and I mean that's that's great. On the especially this movie was pretty much kind of the idea for it was kind of made up on the spot. So when they were oh. trying to sell off the uh, well, they were trying to get uh, sell the rights to uh, American Distribution for the first two films. And like, well, do you have more? And they're like, uh, sure. It's it's about these uh, trio of bums who wander around the Civil War trying to steal money. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Leon. I think it was Leon. He says like, you know, it's like he. The title came to him instantly in his head, uh, just like on a movie poster. He saw the good. Uh, I think he originally was the good, the ugly, and the bad. I think that's what mm-hmm. his original title was. If I, I, I might, I just know that the order of the. The words was different originally, and it changed to the good, the bad, and the ugly. But uh, I mean, I, I think it definitely had an effect, and I think it also um, it showed. Uh, I mean, to me, I mean, you had good scores before, but uh, this was a little different in some of its music. I mean, the whole thing with the you know that that ah, you know, you didn't have a lot of that type of stuff, and it really showed that you could have these weird kind of sounds too, and still had and create a very memorable uh, feel to your films, just with the music. And Scotty D, how about you? Uh, what do you think of the impact of the good, the bad, and the ugly had on films today or our culture and such? I um, Two things. Uh, for one thing, I'll tell you this. Where I'm staying right now, we have a, a lovely family that I'm staying with. And... Um, as you know, one of the kids was making, actually making her chili for dinner tonight. It was actually really great chili, by the way. Um, and uh, I mentioned, like, oh, by the way, guys, I I realized I have to record a podcast later tonight on the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this kid, who's uh, like eleven years old, uh, just goes, wah wah wah. He's like eleven years old. And her stepdad's like, you haven't even seen that movie. And she says, it doesn't matter. I don't know how I know it, but I know it. <laughs> it's the music itself has become so iconic that it is as iconic as Superman or Star Wars. Uh, people just know it and they immediately associate it. It becomes associated not just it becomes associated specifically with this movie and with this type of Western in general. Mm-hmm. Um also, as a film itself, um, this uh, this this movie is um, it is pretty much the punk rock western, and I will explain this. You know, even though it's like it's like whoa, it's two hours and forty minutes. It's like huge. It's instead of being small, yeah, but. We had the like the you know the singing cowboys you know with the rhinestone you know stuff <laughs> the people with sound looked like they came out of the trailers. Glenn was saying, um, you had the John Wayne movies, which of course I'm on record on two of these spoiler room episodes of saying I absolutely adore, I love. This was the no. This is rough. This is mean. This is dirty this is sweaty it is really really down and gritty and this is and i think without this movie uh there's always the question of whether if the western is dead and a lot of times it kind of seems to be uh they don't make them like i mean it used to be like one of the mainstays of the cinema and now you get 
you're lucky if you get a couple theatrically released each year. Uh, most of them straight to video, and not a whole lot being produced as of that. Adds that. So, but without this, the western didn't survive. Period. Mm-hmm. It just didn't survive. They didn't make the movies in the mid '60s and in the '70s, and they didn't try to have the revivals because, uh, and they didn't wasn't still the the interest um, in further generations because this was the reaction to it. I mean, it was kind of like uh, in the 70s how uh, you had a- AOR music artists and you had uh, progressive rock artists, all of which I love, by the way. I'm a huge fan of those musics. Punk had to happen, though. <laughs> it, had to, it, it had to say... You know what? You you're kind of straying a little far from what it, this actually is. And the good, the bad, and the ugly. What Sergio Leone did, and what people like uh, Corbucci and others did afterwards, uh, is that he said, "Yeah, but let's not forget the wild in Wild West. Let's not forget that this was a time when people were struggling. This is a time when people were just tr- doing whatever they could to, you know, stay ahead of the hangman's noose. And let's really play with that. <laughs> and uh, that's what you got with this. And because of that, that sparked enough interest that it managed to survive. It managed to create a whole different type of Western, and it managed to, to uh, allow the other West to flourish throughout history and not just become some little footnote in cinematic history. So I think the legacy of this movie goes far beyond even these movies. Well said. And, and Paul, the answer to your own question, uh, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I, I think it did have a huge influence like the other the others have stated. Uh, the music is iconic. You can You can hear it and everyone instantly thinks either Western or this movie specifically, you know, with, the, with tumbleweeds. I don't remember there actually being tumbleweeds in this film, but that image always comes when you hear that song. Um, and it, I, you see it parodied a lot in a lot of different things. Uh, you see inspiration from this film, like the, the three gunfighters pointing guns at each other. Uh, and there was one scene in particular, because I do like comic books, um, and there's a scene where they're showing Blondie with the uh, cigar in his mouth, Mm-hmm. And I swear that that was the scene of, of Wolverine with the cigar in his mouth. I it's, it's swear it looked just like that. And I was like, wow. And so that's where that came from. <laughs> yeah, I get probably. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was this surprisingly. And I'm glad that I, I watched this film because it's it's all this stuff that I didn't have a connection to before watching this film. Now I have a connection that I can tie these things into. And it's like, ah, thank you, Mark. <laughs> You're welcome. And I will agree. It, looking at this, uh, you know, everybody here I, uh, are spot on with their uh, assessment. And I'll go one further and I'll say, this is another one of those films that influenced many filmmakers, not just Western filmmakers, but many filmmakers to come. Namely, watch this film and watch a Quentin Tarantino film. <laughs> yes, thank you. 
I, I mean, in a way, I mean, he's just one of the many. But, you know, you have Seven Samurai and Kurosawa who's influenced. But this film is also Sergio Leone with the good and bad and the ugly. You look at the way some of these scenes are shot. And some of the stuff has actually been abandoned over the years for a narrative and, and how to set up things. But when they do come across those scenes, like you mentioned with Wolverine, they're there. If you've seen this film, you can spot the influences that this film had in how not only the Western, but just how this film is put together. It We mentioned it's two hours and 40 some minutes. It does not feel like that. At no point do you really feel like that with this film. Because just when you think things are going to start to slow down, they pick right back up again. But stuff is, the, the thing is constantly moving forward, which is impressive among anything. You get longer films nowadays, and we joke about it, how the average film nowadays is like two hours long. You know? <laughs> and they don't need to be necessarily. Because you know a lot of those films, if they feel like they have filler or whatnot, and they don't have stuff that's actually moving the plot along. This one, it's constantly moving, and things are they're always moving forward. You know, no matter what, if you think about it, these guys are always heading towards the treasure. <laughs> you know, even even when they're in the prison, they're still heading towards the treasure. The way this narrative plays out is is great. And I really think people should watch it because you can see the influences. And yeah, as mentioned, the music, you know, even people who've never seen it, uh, uh, Metallica uses Ecstasy of Gold, which is a fantastic piece that plays when Tuco reaches the cemetery and starts searching for uh, the, the, the grave site. That music is iconic. Metallica opens every one of their concerts with that track. And it, it's that impactful of a film. And yes, I, I agree. It not only impacted cinema, but, but culture, and it's still around today in its influences. So, well, uh, good question there, Paul. Uh, Scott, how about you? Did you have a, a topic or something you wanted us to talk about? Well, it's kind of a question. It's more of an observation, but sure. I'm, so I'll do, what I'll do is I'll make it and I'll say kind of like do the Weasley Tuco thing and just like uh, say, just say like, so what do you think? You know, anything to add to that? You know, sure. how do you see this? Do you think, do you agree? Do you think I'm full of it? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, is that I look at this film and uh, Leone really loved playing things up. Uh, I was, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the True Grit episode or not, but uh, on the commentary for that movie, they bring up the I- the idea that, all these Italian spaghetti westerns and everything were like a lot of uh, Italian films of the day were shot without sound, mm-hmm. uh, and and were dubbed in later so that they could get them all for domestic and international markets. So they were shot without sound. Sergio Leone wanting to play things off and make thing everything bigger. Uh, for his pistol, why does everything seem to have an impact? Like boom, boom, boom in the movies. His pistol shots for his pistol shots, he used rifles and shotguns. Oh, <laughs> sound. And for and for the shotguns and rifles, he used cannons. <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of plays a part. I, I look at this and I say, this 
film, I think, uh, exemplifies an Italian tradition. Uh, we see it in how the Italians handled crime movies. We see it how they handled horror movies, for sure, uh, of this tradition where it you can look at it and you can say, like, oh, how it's doing uh, – drawing upon the great Italian painters, like in the cemetery shots and everything like that, and the tableau that – tableaus that Celania does. But also opera. I don't know about you guys. I – I, I'm not no expert, far from it, but I really like opera. <laughs> and this has like so this these films are so operatic with their villains and their their heroes and their double crosses. And just when you think things are like straightforward, no, they're more complicated and everything somehow seems bigger <laughs> than it's supposed to be this great operatic tradition i think i see i, I see leone what leone did and the spaghetti westerns as an extension of that that uh that operatic tradition and the tradition of the classic uh italian art forms i see it as another step forward in that uh, okay that's my statement i guess my question is <laughs> Does anybody else like see that? How do you think this plays a part in like, you know, how the Italians handle different, you know, do you see like any Italian tradition and how they did this and how they would handle things, other genres to come like horror and crime and all that other stuff? Ooh, good question. Uh, Paul, what do you think? I would, I would definitely, I didn't notice it until you brought it up. Uh, so and that's why I'd have to sit back and try to, try to mill over it I'd, and i probably want to watch this film with that in mind and try to see it but yes i i can i can think about it and going back with my memory i can see yes it was a it was big and it had a lot of these operatic style to it and i'm definitely going to watch it again and, and determine that as for uh would i like to see that sort of stuff move forward yes definitely i would like to see um that sort of stuff in horror although not everywhere i don't want it to see every single film be that way because then of course it'll get boring and stagnant and and it'll be just like a monster screaming at you on the screen every every five seconds i don't want that but uh yeah it would be nice to have a few movies that kind of go over the top maybe a gore gore you know gore porn type film <laughs> i could definitely see that being something that could be very over the top, you know, maybe with the blood geysers, which I hate so much, and that sort of thing could be there. Would, would you say that it had a bit of a, maybe an influence, or, or you can see that Italian style that comes across in giallo films? Because you are the horror, uh, well, we're all horror fans, but uh, yeah. you specifically, Paul, watch a lot of horror uh, almost exclusively, so would you say there's influences there? Ah. <sighs> Yes, but there's also other influences. But yeah, I could see it. I can definitely see it. And I said definitely a lot. <laughs> definitely. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Def, def, definitely can get oh, them. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that, you know, our, I think Argento is to Hitchcock what Leone was to John Ford. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Glenn, how about you? Would you say this is rather operatic in that Italian style and. And uh, that, you know, it, it kind of fits within that art, artistic style. 
Yeah, um, it, it definitely does have that feel. Um, it's, it's, it's. I mean, everything about it is big and bold. I mean, even though it's it's gritty and dirty, it's it's very, you know, it's that it's sweeping vistas. You know, the just shots of the massive desert and and uh, the music is is big and bold, and it's 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 as big a character, if not bigger than anyone else in it. Yeah, it it does. <laughs> the music is. It, it should have had its own credit. Just said the music. <laughs> played by the music uh, <laughs> for the film. And I, I'll agree. Yeah. It, this really has uh, that uh, operatic Italian opera feel to it, which I think Leone was going for it, specifically. Uh, I think Leone was, was really trying to bring you not just a spaghetti Western, but a, a operatic spaghetti Western and, and succeeds <laughs> on, on pretty much every level with this film. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's a great observation because you, you can see some of these shots too, as paintings almost, especially that, that showdown with the really wide shot of the three standing there and you, you get there where they're at spatially and you're just like, wow, you know, that that's a painting right there. <laughs> you can see that on someone's wall, probably a, you know, a, a pizzeria, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> awesome that would be awesome would it <laughs> <laughs> only they're standing around a pizza no there you go anyway now I've, oh. now I've gone off the rails but glenn how about you did you have anything at all that we might not have touched on already that uh you want to talk about with the film i was gonna talk about the music but we've pretty much covered that so <laughs> that's okay well th- this was uh morconi correct ennio morconi yeah ennio morconi who did now he did the music for so they made the radio yeah. <laughs> he did the music for uh the other two films too didn't he yeah you can't separate i god i almost want to say but i don't think that's it's correct i wanted to say at first that uh for this one morricone did the or morricone i keep on for mispronouncing i, I mispronounce i i, I, I leone i know it's pronounced leone but the other one i keep forgetting <laughs> the, uh, but uh, the, uh, but uh, uh but uh i almost want to say that he did the music uh ahead of time mm-hmm. much like goblin did for suspiria uh and uh leone did the movie around it but i don't know if that's true or not because but he became uh, i mean he became so known because of the first two movies mm-hmm. i mean the first two movies are just so perfect and morcon wound up doing the music for i think god did he wind up doing the music for all of uh leonardo's films uh, at least from dollars on i want to say yeah i, I want to say that's true i'm not sure glenn do you know offhand it's morcon correct <laughs> or is it more Oh, how you pronounce it? Yeah. Uh, Fred? <laughs> no, but... We, it's Morricone. It's Morricone. It is Morricone. Oh, but did, did yeah. he, you know, Glenn, for sure, if maybe he did all of uh, Leone's um, movies after this, or at least since, um, the, since the first three? Ooh, or first I two films? I know. Um, I, I just checked. Uh, he did. Oh. oh, he did. Oh, there you go. He <laughs> did. You I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I was it was killing me. I had to look it up, but I want to say because they became so. I mean, he didn't do uh, he didn't do the peplums uh, that uh, uh, Leone had done beforehand. But from right. dollars onward, I mean, the the two are inseparable. I mean, you can't like you can't 
you know, separate Fred and Ginger. You know, basically, <laughs> <laughs> he became became like that was his thing. You know, um, I mean, point me like a until you got to like those John Williams scores for for from the from the mid seventies, early eighties. I mean, I don't think you. I think you'd be hard pressed to find another composer that was so irreparably linked mm-hmm. with another director, uh, Bernard Herman and Hitchcock, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe but, those two, but that's about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. The music in here and Glenn, uh, would you say, uh, he was influential on today's composers still? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You listen to a lot of soundtracks, but, um, I, I pay attention to soundtracks a lot. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure he's had influence. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I think it'd, it'd be idiotic to say that he has an influence on people. Um, right. I mean, his stuff is, is, I mean, as, as, uh, who mentioned it with the, the kid who even knows the, that one freaking yeah. bit of the, it's, it's so iconic. There's no way that it can't right. uh, have had influence. Yeah, and if you, I don't know if you guys ever caught it, but if you do get a chance, he did a album with Yo-Yo Ma doing mm, uh, doing music, uh, the the these Western uh, musics with Yo-Yo Ma, and it's freaking awesome. Um, Mark Honeywant did so many hundreds of scores, and sometimes he would reuse stuff a lot. But I mean, he did so many scores for like the Italian films, and then. Uh, Hollywood films, all sorts of films, and you know he'd wound up grabbing great thing. He did another one of my favorite scores that he did much later in his career, or at least twenty years later in his career. Uh, I think the score for the it never gets mentioned, and sometimes it's even like cr- sharply criticized. I think the score for the Untouchables is amazing. Mm. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorites of all time. Uh, he, he, Better than and, the film. <laughs> oh no, we will have words about that. <laughs> Um, but uh, I <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, but we will. But I mean, uh, he has so many much that he does, and he could like work in different genres. He worked in horror. He worked in comedy. And if you listen to his different scores, he would adjust for each score. His comedy scores don't sound anything like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And like the scores he did for the horror films, uh, whether he was working for. Uh, one of the major Italian filmmakers in the seventies, or whether he, it was like his original score for the thing, it doesn't sound anything like Good, the yeah. Bad, and the Ugly. He could adjust, but he was—he had like just tons of talent and uh, such a wide range. He, it, mm-hmm. he knew exactly what fit for which uh, for whatever he was doing. Yeah, he he what eighty? Well, he's got uh, he's credited with five hundred twenty-three credits. <laughs> I knew it was a lot. I didn't know it was Lazy that many. That just, He's done that's... composing up through this year. Okay. Oh, yeah. And though that's what's right. interesting, and, and we've had the discussion on the Oscars, and we'll wrap it up here. I know we're, we're getting late because we, we could talk even more, but the first Oscar he wins after this huge body of influential work was for the Hateful Eight. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, that's right. That was that's right. It was such a. It was like because of the. It was like one of those things. Like, okay, look, 
uh, even worse that we haven't acknowledged Scorsese. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, what's funny is too is he's got great scores, and he was actually only nominated uh, seven times for Academy Awards. That's crazy. Oh. And the funny thing is, is that some of the score, some of Hateful Eight, I think was his uh, was an original score, and some of it was stuff that he had done for earlier films. Well, it supposedly from the story that I know uh, heard, part of it was uh, unreleased or undid score for the thing. Yeah, so it was like for the thing. I want to say there may, may have been a piece from Exorcist Two as right. well, but I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, stuff with the thing, like when they're like approaching the uh, thing, they're they're going out of the house or whatever at night in that sequence. You can hear it, yeah. I mean, he did win in 2007 the honorary award, but for the actual Oscar proper, the first one was 2016. And, uh, yeah, he's got some good scores in there. The Bugsy score, Untouchables, The Mission uh, were all nominated as well. But, you know, Hateful Eight, which I think is one of more of those Oscars where, okay, you, you know, here you go. <laughs> we're sorry. <laughs> they, that that. I mean, it's it's a great it's a great score. Whether it was originally intended for the film or not, it's a good film. It's a good score. Um, but that's kind of like the uh, the here is your uh, f- award for uh, best score, aka the we fucked up award. <laughs> you should have had twenty of these by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here you go. We're sorry about that, man. Uh, yeah, here you go. So <laughs> there you have it, folks. And this is a third time's a charm. We're going to wrap it up. You can gather what we're going to answer, but I will pose the question anyway because it is our special series. So we'll go down the line quick. And, folks, uh, my fine crew members here will give their answer, and then they'll also let you know where you can find them at. So, Paul, will go with you first. Would you say third time's a charm for a film like this? I'm going to have to to say yes because I, but i didn't have i haven't seen the first two well so on you. No, i know i know but <laughs> I, i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to say yes this third time's the charm because this was a, a fantastic movie i'm gonna assume that it it carried on uh the tradition in the in the first two so and, and uh, where can people find you at when you're not here well, uh, right now, I just really want to focus on promoting the uh, Northeast Wisconsin Horror Film Festival, which uh, takes place the second weekend of October. All proceeds are going to go to the uh, Time Community Theater in Oshkosh. And if you want more information about that, please check out newhorrorfest.com. That's newhorrorfest.com. Fantastic. And uh, Scotty D, is third time a charm for you? And where can they find you at? Uh, oh well, yeah, absolutely it is. I mean, this is um, this is the best capper to a trilogy you're likely to find. I mean, no matter how much you love another franchise, few people are going to say Godfather Three is the best one. Few people are going to say that Return of the Jedi is the absolute best one, even if it's great. This one really is. I mean, this was the best of the three, and. You know, he would go on even further and make another great uh, spaghetti western with Once Upon a Time in the West later on. And it is probably my, uh, along with the Searchers, along uh, my favorite western. I used to, when people used to ask me my favorite movie, I used to give them a top five, and this was on it. 
Nice. And uh, so, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And then you can reach me at my very little updated website, moviocrity.com. <laughs> and you can also catch my web series, Moviocrity, at vimeo.com slash channel slash Moviocrity. It's on YouTube as well, but do the extra work. Vimeo has all of them. Yeah, and it has the boobs. So uh, it has the boobs. <laughs> it has more boobs on Vimeo. Which you know why? Why why, why y'all like on YouTube happy? Like ooh, YouTube. <laughs> you know how they treat people. You know, unless you're talking about like the end of days, or like talking about why women complain too much, you don't really have a channel on YouTube anymore. <laughs> Go to Vimeo. They got everything. Very artsy. <laughs> and Glenn, I imagine what your answer is, but go ahead. Is third time a charm for good, bad, and the ugly? And where can he find you at? Isn't three the perfect number? Yes. Ooh. Yeah. But I've got six more bullets in my gun. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, three third time is the charm. Um and <sighs> that's I'm not even into the fact the whole third time's the charm makes it almost seem like the first two weren't weren't worthy but they are definitely worthy but yes this is the best of the three mm-hmm. um at least in my uh correct opinion um, <laughs> um yeah uh, definitely 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 a charm uh as far as we can find me you can find me on youtube with my sadly neglected uh, B-Movie Bunker page, you can find me on GNCast.com. With the gaming podcast, I do the Adventure Party. Uh, you can find me at GuyInABunker.com. Also on Facebook with Guy in a Bunker, uh, B-Movie Bunker, and follow me on Twitter at Guy in a Bunker. Fantastic. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And I will also say, yes, third time is definitely a charm for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, this film not just is not just a good Western. It's a good film. <laughs> it's a clinic on on how to handle characters and and scope and everything about this film. You watch this film for me, and there's a reason. Everybody talks about you know Rotten Tomatoes and online, and for you folks out there who wonder about rankings, if you give credit to I am Debim, uh, it is number nine in the top rated films on imdb the top 250 titles on imdb it comes in at number nine it's just under uh return of the king for lord of the rings okay and it is the only western until you get to number 30 which is the other one which we've mentioned here which is once upon a time in the west (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) and that falls in at number 30 but this this film, yes, folks, if you're a cinephile, if you enjoy good movies, even you don't even have to enjoy Westerns. If you just enjoy good movies that are entertaining with a character or two that will just pull you in and keep you interested throughout and make you wonder how it's going to play out. Uh, well, listening to this now, you know, but still check this out. It, <laughs> it, is, it is amazing. And don't let the runtime scare you. OK, uh, see why this film really is 
an iconic film in cinema and a very influential one. And if you want to catch more of our episodes, you can head over to iTunes and Stitcher Radio where you can catch us there on the Spoiler Room podcast channel. You can also head over to Special Mark Productions for our Spoiler Room archive as well as anything else that I work on if you're at all interested there. We will be winding up our uh, Western month next week with The Quick and the Dead which will be interesting because uh, it definitely is an interesting uh, transition from doing this film to going to The Quick and the Dead, which is a completely different type of Western. So, I'd say it's pretty. Impl- I'd say it's heavily influenced by this film. I, 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 we'll <laughs> definitely talk about that, and I, I can say yes, it is. We will. We will see the influences from the good, the bad, and the ugly in our next film as well. So stay tuned, all my friends out there. Thank you so much for listening to us, and now say good night, everyone. Good night, good night, everyone. Hey, oh, hey, oh, oh.